Hey everyone, I'm here with another episode of Colored Red. It'll be a quick one today. I originally planned a more off-the-cuff historical murder that would be very quick, but I've decided to also talk a little bit about the killdozer we've been reading about on the internet. Um, the historical murder I'm going to talk about today is a story brought to you all the way from 1901. In the five years leading up to 1901, Denver established some of the city's favorite attractions, such as the Denver Zoo, the Denver Public Library, and Washington Park, and was already well on its way to being a destination for immigrants, travelers, and people looking for a perfect balance of city life and uh, relative solitude that existed here for a long time. There was a time when men's lodges and secret societies were reaching their heyday in the United States, and they often issued insurance policies, backed unions, and were a central part of most communities. So it's no surprise that Albert Gabrin uh, was a part of two of these societies, the Knights of Pythias Lodge, number 41, and the Woodmen of the World Lodge, number one. Albert was the son of German immigrants and had been born in Germany before he moved to Denver with his family when he was just three years old. So at the end of December 1901, Albert had been elected to the Colorado House of Representatives for about a year and had one based on his concerns with mining in Cripple Creek, as well as his uh, secret society connections. He had also just married his new wife, the widowed Nellie Hensley, in June of that year. She had two children she brought from a previous marriage and had lost her eldest son, Swift Hensley, the year before when he was just 21 years old. On the evening of December 29, 1901, the family went over to Albert's father's house for a holiday dinner. In attendance was Albert and his new family, as well as his three sisters. Nellie, Albert's new wife, brewed a festive punch for the occasion with claret, wine, allspice, and lemons. Albert took a couple of sips at the party and remarked that the punch tasted really sour and bitter. He normally didn't drink, as is typically a rule of being in some secret societies, but had a drink tonight in honor of a toast for the holidays. Within three days, Albert was dead from what the coroner ruled was acute gastritis induced by fermented wine. But the curious thing was that the rest of the family had several glasses each, and none of them had died. What had happened, though, was that they all became so ill that they threw up what they drank, unlike Albert, who didn't throw up. One doctor, a Dr. Moses Kleiner, had suspicions about the death. Since Nellie's son had also died prematurely, he decided to send samples of Albert's stomach and internal organs to a Dr. Hilkowitz for examination. Months after the samples were sent, Hilkowitz informed Kleiner that there was arsenic in the gut and that Albert had died from arsenic poisoning. When Nellie was questioned about this, she theorized that there might have been some arsenic stored in the jug that the liquor store used for the wine and that it wasn't washed properly. The liquor store could prove that they only purchased new jugs to put their wine in. Even more damning was that Albert's Woodman of the World life insurance policy had been changed to benefit Nellie instead of Albert's sisters only eight days before his death. Coincidentally, a Woodman of the World life insurance policy had also been issued for Nellie's son Swift, who is also a woodsman, and the policy was renewed by Nellie on the afternoon that Swift had died. Even more coincidental was that Swift had died of arsenic poisoning. A grand jury was convened to look over the case, and the jury ended up finding a ton of problems, none of which had to do with Nellie. 
They noted that Coroner Horan had used a fluid containing arsenic to embalm the body, yet I couldn't find where it was clear that the samples were taken from an embalmed body or not. The grand jury also blamed Denver druggists for not keeping record of arsenic sold. They blamed Hilkowitz for pro- uh, providing the analysis a little bit too late because apparently it took him months to actually produce any data on this. They blamed a police officer living as a boarder in the home for not suspecting something. And they blamed Albert's attending physician for not suspecting arsenic as a culprit when he immediately got sick. They decided that while Nellie was clearly the sole suspect and it was very suspicious and she had a number of coincidences leading to her as the culprit, they could not pursue the case. So the Woodsman of the World awarded Nellie $3,000 in life insurance, which equates to roughly $90,000 today, and Albert was buried next to Nellie's first husband, whose death was never brought up, and who was also a Woodsman of the World member with an insurance policy. So there's a quick and interesting story. Insurance fraud and murder for insurance fraud is probably as old as life insurance itself. One interesting thing is that up until the mid-1920s, Woodsman members were buried with a gravestone that looked like a tree stump with a big emblem on it. You can find some of these in older Denver cemeteries. But this isn't all I'll be talking about in this episode. Um, I wanted to talk briefly about the Granby Killdozer since I've been seeing it around the internet this week. The leading school of thought on this seems to be that Marvin Heatmeyer was a hero who fought back against a local government, hell-bent on stepping on his toes and denying his requests and that he created some badass armored vehicle to take down the town. And I'll be totally honest with you guys. I can kind of empathize with the idea of just plowing my way through traffic in an armored bulldozer. And watching the videos, you kind of want to be like, hell yeah. But most people haven't heard all the details about this, and you might not think he's much of a folk hero after all. So on June 4th, 2004... Marvin Heemeyer, the owner of a muffler repair shop, drove an armored Komatsu bulldozer through Granby, Colorado in an effort to demolish the town hall, the former mayor's house, and other businesses in Granby. After he demolished a good deal of the town, he took his own life with a gun in the armored bulldozer. Marvin had moved to Grand Lake, which is a town near Granby, um, 10 years before this incident. He purchased land for $42,000, and he built a muffler repair shop and then tried to sell a part of the land across the street to a man who wanted to build a concrete batch plant. He initially agreed to sell the land for $250,000, as was offered to him, but eventually he started changing his mind, and his price rose to about $1 million, and he backed out of the deal. The property was still sold to the concrete plant builder right as the city agreed to rezone the land for building of the concrete plant, and Marvin was angered because he used the concrete plant property to get to his own business. It's sort of unclear why he initially agreed to any kind of deal um, and why he wanted to sell the land in the first place if this was going to be an impossibility, but it was also around this time that he was fined $2,500 for violations like having junk cars on his property and his property not being connected to a sewer line, which he claimed was disconnected during the concrete plant construction and wasn't his fault. On top of this, Marvin had a number of other frivolous lawsuits started by him um, against other people in town, and he was either known as an affable man who could get along with some people, or he was known as basically a trouble starter who seemed to have issues with a lot of different things with people. 
Um, he bought a bulldozer in hopes of using it to make a new path to his muffler shop, but the city denied his request to build a new path, which I'll agree sounds a little bit ridiculous. Uh, three months before his rampage through the city, he leased his property, and some other sources say he sold the property, I'm not sure, to a trash company and closed the muffler shop. He outfitted the bulldozer um, in a shed near his property with armor that was over one feet thick in areas and consisted of concrete between two steel sheets, making it resistant to gunshots from small arms and explosive. And this armor was put to the test when three explosions and 200 rounds were used in attempts to stop him as he rampaged through the town and none of them had any effect. So in order for Marvin to see, he also outfitted the outside of the bulldozer with cameras that were linked to video monitors inside. And um, there were the cameras were protected on the outside with three-inch sheets of plastic. There were also three gun ports um, for a 50 caliber anti-material rifle, a 308 semi-automatic, and a 22 long rifle. Once Marfin was in the bulldozer, it's suspected that he used a crane in his shed to lower the armor over the bulldozer as there was no door and he wouldn't have been able to get out. So inside he had a stockpile of food and water as well as an air tank for circulation and it was apparent that he never had any intention of getting out. So Marvin proceeded to bulldoze through the his former business, which was now the trash place, the concrete plant, the town hall, the office of the local newspaper, the home of the former mayor's widow, and a hardware store owned by a man who he had disputes with in the past, as well as part of the library. He did around $7 million in damages, and some reports say that it wasn't Marvin's intention to hurt anybody, and that he was just after property, but he had no way of knowing that no one was in the buildings, and police in town say it's a miracle no one died other than Marvin. He shot at numerous propane tanks and power transformers, and luckily none exploded. But had they exploded, anyone in the vicinity would have been in danger. He also shot at the man who purchased the land for the concrete plant, and the man had tried to defend his shop and stop the assault with a wheel tractor scraper, but he was unsuccessful. Um, there were there was a children's program also going on at the library at the time when he attacked it, and most buildings were occupied until moments before his attack on them. At some point, one officer dropped a flashbang grenade down the bulldozer's exhaust pipe, and it had no apparent effect. Local and state patrol, including a SWAT team, walked behind and beside the bulldozer, occasionally firing, but the armored bulldozer was impervious to their shots. The whole incident eventually came to a stop when problems arose as Hemeyer destroyed the Gamble's hardware store. The radiator of the dozer had been damaged and the engine was leaking various fluids and Gamble's had a small basement. The bulldozer's engine failed and Hemeyer dropped one tread into the basement and couldn't get out. And about a minute later, one of the SWAT team members who had swarmed around the machine heard a gunshot come from inside the sealed cab. They were eventually able to get the top of the killdozer off and found uh, his dead body inside. He had died from a gunshot wound to the head. And they went to his house in order to see if they could find any sort of information about what was going on. And in notes found after the incident, he cited the zoning dispute as his sole reason for the rampage with the bulldozer. He also sent recorded tapes to his brother, who released them to the FBI, and who sent them to the Grand County Sheriff's Department. 
The tapes were two and a half hours long and featured Marvin stating that God built him for this job. He said it was God's plan that he never marry or have a family so that he could carry out this God-given task. He said that um, God blessed me in advance for the task that I'm about to undertake. It is my duty. God has asked me to do this. It's a cross that I am going to carry, and I'm carrying it in God's name. He also believed that God intentionally clouded the minds of the couple of people who saw him building the killdozer and didn't report it, likely just because they had no idea what it was. In addition to the tapes and notes inside his shed, they found lists of names of people in town who had ever cited against him in one of his many frivolous disputes with locals, and police believed that they may have been intended targets. He targeted the local newspaper because they didn't publish as many letters of complaints in their paper. He targeted locals over non-government squabbles and literally anyone in town who ever disagreed with him. So does he have a case with the zoning dispute? Possibly, but it seems like he was an incredibly difficult person to make a deal with or approach as he later proved to be the case. So, folk hero fighting against an uncaring government, or maniac couldn't handle not getting his way, or something in between? You decide. Thanks, guys. Um, I'm going to have my end-of-the-month episode. It's going to be a, um, a kidnapping case, so it should be interesting. I've noticed some new iTunes reviews that are excellent comments, and I really appreciate it. I do read all these things, and I, I appreciate you guys helping me out. Um, please, if you like the if you like the podcast, go on iTunes, rate, review it, and that would really help me out a lot. Um, I started an Instagram, but I have no idea how to do it or what's going on on it. So I'm going to try to start getting that going. And um, as always, there's going to be some pictures up about this case on Facebook. So thanks, guys. Until next time. <laughs>